You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. We're going to start off this morning a little bit differently, little audience participation. So this is true for those of you in the room, those of you online, everybody can participate. I need you to finish this sentence for me. So you're going to have to, you have to speak up a little bit, all right? Parenting... Parenting is what? Hard. That was like immediate consensus. Wow. Hard. What else we got? A joy. You're so positive, Pat. Way to go. A hard came first and then joy. Well, give me one more. Parenting it. Frustrating. There you go. Yeah, feel that one. There you are. We could probably riff on this for a little bit. And I know couples that are about to be parents and they're going, wait, What? So here's our story. Mandy and I were married for nine months, and then we found out we were going to be pregnant with Joseph, um, who's now about to be 17. We have three kids, Joseph, 17, Karsten, who's 15, and Hannah is 12. Um, Here's my summation of what I have learned about parenting in about 17 years of doing it. I know less now than when I started. I read books. I attended seminars. I thought I had it. I was the perfect parent right up until the moment I became one. And maybe that's your story also. Well, this is our sixth week in our seven-week series on David. David, broken and beloved. We've seen David as a kid, a teenager, as an emerging adult. We followed him into the cave as a young leader. Last week, we saw him shipwreck his life in what could have been seen as his prime years. And under all of that, there's this constant earthy, gritty, and at times dissonant song that David broken and beloved. Not or. This good gospel truth that you don't have to hide your shame to find God. That God just says, come. So this week we're going to get an uncomfortably close look at David the dad. And if you thought last week out there on the porch with Bathsheba was a little rough, just buckle up for this morning. To describe David's home life as a soap opera would be an understatement. Seeing David's parenting makes me honestly question God's choice for this guy as king. Because I wouldn't want this guy leading anything. I wouldn't want him around. Probably more than any other arena in his life, David's parenting pushes the limits of grace, makes me wonder how much brokenness God will tolerate. But eventually, eventually helps me deepen my understanding of restoration. So one final important word of intro before we get to it. Um, This is not a message for parents because this is not a message about parenting only. This is a message for anyone who knows what it is to love in this world and to suffer in this world. So this morning we're going to wrap our arms around a 12-year span in David's life. We're going to start from his mid-50s and into his late 60s. David's heart rises and falls like a ship on an ocean of emotion until finally he crashes on the shores of grace 
and he learns one very important lesson. The best thing you could do for someone else is to show them what God has done for you. So, you can get to the text if you want. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13. We'll get there, but a couple little bits of context just to let us know where we are in this whole thing. First little fact to set the context. The wives, and I said wives, plural. At this point, David has eight wives. All throughout the Old Testament, it was common practice for kings to have multiple wives. Now, what we said in our Holy Sexuality series about a month or so ago is that God's design for marriage is always one man and one woman for life. And so polygamy, while it is in the Old Testament, is always outside of God's intention. We shouldn't see David's polygamy as permission, but as a concession to human sinfulness. Eight of them. Contextual fact number two, the kids. (laughs) So at this point, David has about 18 sons and one daughter. Only one daughter. That's important. We have to say about 18 sons because um, some may have gone by more than one name. We just don't know. Uh, Some names may be lost to history. Today we're concerned with two of his oldest sons. And that one daughter. Amnon is David's firstborn son. He's driven and he's calculating. Turns out a lot like David on his bad days. <laughs> Absalom is David's thirdborn son. With his looks and charisma, Absalom is a natural people magnet. His name ironically means father of peace. Turns out, we'll find out, he's anything but. And then there's Tamar, David's only daughter. Absalom's full sister, Amnon's half-sister. Bear that in mind. Contextual fact number three. With the wives, the kids, the tension. Remember last week, God sent Nathan, David's dentist-type pastor who promises he won't harm you, but he'll probably hurt you. He comes to him and he gives him some really tough words and he leaves with some pretty heavy words for David. He says, the sword shall never depart from your house. So conflict. And then he says, evil will rise up against you from your own house. So not just conflict, David, but conflict from your own kids. Translation, because of David's sin with Bathsheba, there's this shadow hanging over of Casa de David. (laughs) So with all of that, We'll drop into the living room of King's David, King David's house. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to read this whole thing in one giant chunk. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Same mom, same dad. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, same dad, different mom, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything with her. See where this is going? But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, David's nephew. Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, I got a plan for you, dude. Sit down. Here's how this can go. 
Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come. Give me bread and eat. And prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Sound like a plan? So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David, father of the year, sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough, and she kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone from me. So everyone went out from him, and Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. When she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the most outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he won't withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her, and he lay with her. Okay, so this is sick. This is reprehensible. There's lust, rape, incest, manipulation, which is crazy for any family, but made all the worse by this is David's family. So here's who's on stage. Let's back up to get the effect of this. His firstborn, Amnon, his daughter, Tamar, his thirdborn, Absalom, and his nephew, Jonadab. This is the family of the guy who wrote a good bit of the book of Psalms. This is the family of the guy who's elsewhere called a man after God's own heart. This is the guy who our God appointed as the spiritual leader of his people. If this was a movie, and you were flipping through the channels late one night, and you came across even a two-second clip from this scene, you would move on as quickly as you could. Let's look at this a bit closer. Does any of this sound familiar? David on a porch? David's sin with Bathsheba ignited with sight. Same with Amnon's. For David, sight then warms into desire. Same with Amnon. David removes accountability, remember? Same with Amnon. He says, send everybody away from me. Even the verbs, David took her. She came to him. He lay with her. Amnon took hold of his sister, violated her, and lay with her. And just like David, as if the act wasn't reprehensible enough, we can feel this curtain of tragic consequences hanging on the horizon. So what happens? Just a quick summary. Next morning, Amnon kicks Tamar out. And Amnon, or Tamar leaves weeping, and she puts ashes on her head, a sign of public mourning. Day or two goes by, and then verse 20. Drop down. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? As, and then he doesn't even wait for the answer. Here's what he says. Now hold peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. And I'm going, whoa, 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 what? 
This is a life-altering experience. This is not something you can sweep under the rug. This isn't something you can just look the other way at, right? Like, where did Absalom learn that kind of callousness? Reminds you of anyone. And then who shows up again? David, in verse 21. When King David heard all of these things, he was, what? Very angry. Very angry, David. I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm. That's glad you're, you're, you're angry. Good. That'll help. <laughs> Interestingly, the word for very angry is the same word used last week back in chapter 12, verse 5, where Pastor Nathan told David that parable, you remember, about the rich man stealing the poor man's sheep, and David was very angry. Here, another injustice is done, and David gets very angry. The word means inner burning. And so what does David do with that anger? Absolutely nothing. Why? We'll get to that in a minute. The story continues. Back to the HBO late night mature audiences only drama. Two years go by. Two years of tension and irresolution. Two years of suspicion and raised eyebrows between half-brothers Amnon and Absalom. Quick tip, avoiding conflict rarely makes it go away. How many of you know that? All right, let's pick things up in verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Bel-Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom said to the king, he says, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and all his servants go with your servant. Like, let's go have a party, Dad. Come on. But the king said to Absalom, no, no, let's not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. You don't have to host Thanksgiving. Come on. <laughs> but he pressed him, and he would not go. But he gave him his blessing. And then Absalom said, well, okay, fine. If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, why should he go with you? <laughs> Come on, David. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with them. Then Am or Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon and then kill him. Do not fear, for have I not commanded you, be courageous and valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Here's what's happening. It's sheep shearing time. This is ancient Israel's corn maze. This is festival. This is fun. This is family. Absalom chooses this time as the stage for his revenge. And you heard what he told his servants. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Isn't it strange how holy that sounds? If you know your Old Testament, doesn't that sound familiar? That's what Joshua said before they entered the promised land. That was the banner of God's people saying, look, if you're up against something hard, hasn't God commanded you? Be strong, courageous, he's with you. And so Absalom lifts those words out of context and drops them in as a way to justify what he wants to do, twisting God's word to suit his own purposes, tailoring it to fit his agenda. Small other lesson, just because it sounds holy doesn't mean it actually is. So Amnon's dead. The deed is done. The score is settled. Where does Absalom go? Slide down to verse 37. Absalom fled 
and went to Talmai, the son of Imihud, the king of Geshur. David mourned for his son day after day. So just for reference's sake, where is he going? This is about 100 miles northeast where they are in Jerusalem, roughly the distance from here to Erie, Pennsylvania. It's not like just a walk down the street, a little bit of a hike. After letting Amnon off the hook and leaving the door, or Absalom off the hook, leaving the door open for Amnon's murder, what's David's response in verse 37? He mourns for his son day after day. Absalom fled, went to Geshur, and there was three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Wept, mourned, longed, but nothing else. The next seven years are a blur for David. Here are the cliff notes. If you want to read the next couple chapters on your own, you're welcome to. Here's the summary. After three years of self-imposed exile in Geshur, Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, but David doesn't even welcome him home. Absalom spends two years in the city without ever seeing his dad. That's estrangement and dysfunction on a whole other level. So in this childlike plea for attention, Absalom burns the field of David's best friend to try and get his attention. The plea works, and David invites Absalom for a formal state reception, which is not the dad moment that Absalom needed. Three more years go by. Absalom's soul is now cramping from eight years of daddy wounds. And he says to himself, you know what, I'll bet I could run this place a lot better than dad can. Dad's getting old and crusty. So he starts this covert campaign to undermine David's authority. He gathers hundreds of his best followers, his best soldiers, with one expressed intention, to kill David, his dad, and take the throne. And he waits for the right time Hundreds of Israel's best men hail him as king. And then this message comes to David. And a messenger gives the gut punch in chapter 15, verse 13. He says this. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So now you've got a divided kingdom on your hand. Realizing he's got to do something. He doesn't know what to do. David musters 3,000 troops to go after his sons, a couple hundred troops. Does that ring any bells? How many troops did Saul have when he pursued David? (laughs) What's David doing? But then, just as his men are headed out of the gate, David catches two of his generals by the collar. And here's what he says to him, chapter 18, verse 5. king ordered Joab and Abishai and Atai, generals. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Those words kind of hit us a little oddly, don't they? Like, dude, you know what it's like to be on the run. Here you are on the run from your own son who wants to kill you. (laughs) Deal kindly with him. So does David's generals listen to him? Verse 9 gives us the answer. 
Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. He was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Kind of an odd picture, isn't it? What did David's generals do? Slide down to verse 14. Joab took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten men, or ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. News of the incident eventually reaches David. And another nameless servant brings the report. Slide down to verse 31. Behold, the Cushite, that's this nameless servant, comes to David. The Cushite said, Good news from my Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. He thinks he's going to make David's day. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Instantly realizing what that means, the king is deeply moved and went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And this is how David's story with Absalom ends. This twisted, tangled, knotted, gut-wrenching heartache. And for David, two of his sons, dead, his only daughter, desolate, and his own heart completely defeated. No father no matter how detached, and no parent, no matter how imperfect, no one imagines this kind of wreckage is going to show up on the shore of their life. And I'm willing to bet that while none of us have all of this, many of us have some of it. So I want to show you something that I think is dark and very beautiful. There's this picture I want to show you. This picture is simply called O David. And it's, um, it was painted in 1865 by a painter, British painter named Frederick Layton. And it depicts the moment when David hears about Absalom's death. Twelve years of pent-up emotion in one look. Really look at it. What do you see? What do you notice? First thing you notice is right in the foreground, you see David himself, just this big, black, dark, creates this mournful, sobering, and somber tone for the whole thing. The paintbrush would have been loaded with black paint. This is not a happy picture. But then you scan down to the lower corner, and what do you see? You see a crown. This is David's crown. It doesn't look like it's been thrown there, though. It's too close for that. It looks like it's leaning carefully up against a wall. It's been placed there in pain. David doesn't want to be king anymore. He just wants to be a dad. He just wants to be David. You ever felt the wordless weight of regret like that? 
words you didn't say, steps you didn't take, sure you have. You ever want to hit the eject button? (laughs) Move back up to David's face. On the way up, though, we notice his hands. His right hand is clenched in a fist on his lap. His left hand is clenched in a fist on the hard marble of a wall. You ever wring your hands like that where like the emotions just won't come? It's anger, it's sadness, trying to soothe the emotions deep inside. You ever been there? Sure you have. Then look at his eyes. His eyes, if you can see them, are this wide and bewildered look. If his hands are grounded in the moment, his eyes are off somewhere. They're looking like off frame, like out of the picture. Somewhere else, he's fighting to believe that someone is still there. Ever wondered that? This press of very present pain, the emptiness of exhaustion. And then maybe you caught this. Those things in the upper right that are underlit by the lining clouds. Do you see them up there? There's two doves flying away. Two doves, symbols of peace, maybe. Maybe a play on Absalom's name. Flying away from him. Maybe they were here, but now their backs have turned away. Maybe he wants them to return, but maybe he just wants to be them, underlit and lovely, at peace. Now, Sunday morning is not art history class, so why do I show you this? Why, after tumbling down 12 years of tragedy, is this the image that I want to give you? Let's leave it up here for a minute. Here's what I think we need to understand. I believe that, great, that David's greatest misstep was the story he didn't tell. David got here because of what he didn't say, because of what he didn't do. Here's my question over this giant 12-year arc. Why didn't David say anything? Like with Tamar's rape, we're told while he's very angry. With Amnon's murder, we're told that he mourns. And then at the news of Absalom's death, Absalom, my son, those are expected emotional reactions and they are good. But don't you want to reach through the pages and go, David, you can stop this freight train. You know what it is to have the weight of sin on your back. You've walked the long road of repentance and restoration. You know how debilitating shame's voice can be. You know how this works. You know how this goes. You have sang the repentance song. You have something good to offer. Say it. And instead, the bold shepherd boy who defended lambs from lions, nothing. The stone-killing would-be hero who took down a giant, nada. The courageous king with this Hall of Fame military record, absolute silence, and with the opportunity to stop the pending moral collapse, not even a whisper. Why? Why does David stay silent? It's not really that hard. One commentator puts it like this. The results of David's sin with Bathsheba become evident in the relationship he has with his sons. For how can a father discipline his children when he knows that they've done, or he has done worse than they? 
When David's son Amnon rapes Tamar, David is very angry, and yet he takes no action, for he too has committed his own sexual offense. Tamar's brother, Absalom, murders Amnon, but David again does nothing, for he too has murder on his head. So why does David stay silent? Why doesn't he step up? Why doesn't he say anything? You know why. Because you've been there too. You know the voice that he's listening to. David's afraid that if he were to rebuke Amnon, and if he were to rebuke Absalom, if he were to drop the wall and be real for a second and not be king, that somebody, or maybe a group of somebodies, would raise a finger and go, Hey, David, dude, you don't have a leg to stand on, bro. Remember that night on the porch? Do you remember Bathsheba? Hey, David, do you remember that, that whole thing with Uriah? You're a rapist, too. You're a murderer, too. You're a sinner, too. You keep your mouth shut, you hypocrite. But the beautiful story is not being told here, that even a story like David's can be redeemed. Even a story like David's can be leveraged for greater good. And even a story like David's can be used by our God for his great purposes. Here's the principle. Shame loves silence. And that's what's perpetuating sin and preventing goodness and beauty. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any shameful parts in your story? Sure you do. I do. You have any dark spots in your past? Any brokenness that you wish was not there? Imagine what it would feel like to have no off-limits conversations. People could ask you anything. Imagine what it would be like to not get nervous when that period of your life was brought up in conversation at a party and you have to look for a convenient off-ramp to change the subject. Imagine what it would be like to live with that kind of freedom where you could tell the truth without fear or judgment, without a canned response or a half-truth answer. If you can imagine that, that freedom is called the gospel. The question is not, do you have any brokenness in your story? Yes, we all do. The question is, what are you doing with it? The best thing that you can do for someone else is to show them what God has done for you. Shame tells you, hide it, bury it. Don't you ever let anybody seize it. And the gospel says, repent, repent. And let God redeem it, name it, and then invite others come and see how good our God can be. Let's lighten things up a little bit. I want to talk about elementary school science fairs. Okay, Greentown Elementary School, 1988. I don't think it's going to shock you to find out that seven-year-old Brandon does not math or science well. These are things early in my life. I'm like, just give me a book, give me history, give me literature, I'm happy. But... Second grade science fair. Okay. 
Here we go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to rock this. Just so happened for Christmas that year, I had been given a little um, microscope. It was this cool little, like, dun green plastic thing with about a dozen slides, mostly bugs. I remember loving this thing. I spent hours in my room putting slides under this thing and, like, moving the plastic lens as it, like, reflected through the mirror and the light. And I love seeing all these little bugs, the translucent wings of a dragonfly, the thin forked tail of a springtime mayfly, the strong jaws of a summertime grasshopper. I loved this stuff. And so when science fair time came, I go, hey, this is sort of science-y. And so methinks what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of this stuff and I'm just going to like plop it on my desk and go like, look, come and see this thing. And you know how grade school science fairs work. One kid brought, you know, solar system with the foam balls and the hangers. It's always that kid. One kid brought a volcano. There's always that kid. I'm not making this one up. One kid brought this whole project of how she was able to make paper from recycled jeans. And I'm like, there is no way your mom and dad weren't involved in that in some way. That is terrible. <laughs> so I just had my little microscope with my slides on my desk. I didn't try and prove a point. I didn't have a display. It was just like, I don't know. Come see the thing. <laughs> My little project, if you can call it that, was not innovative. It didn't make an argument. It didn't make a point. And as it turns out, it wasn't enough. My come and see invitation um, earned me a less than stellar grade. And so I finally conceded defeat to my second grade teacher, who I know watches online from time to time. And uh, yeah, last week it was dentists. This week it's teachers. I got issues. We'll deal with that later. But at the risk of doing complete corporate catharsis in front of you this morning, here's my point. I've come to believe that most of the Christian life is not about making a point. I've come to believe that most of the Christian life is not about trying to prove something. Most of the Christian life is not always about arguing or doing anything innovative. I think that most of the Christian life is simply saying, come and see what I have found to be beautiful. Most of the Christian life is an invitation to see what I see and love who I love. The best thing you can do for someone is to show them what God has done for you. Just come and see. What I want most from David at any point in this giant 12-year arc is the one thing I don't get. What I want is Amnon, my son. I know the lust road I know where this leads. I know what happens when you walk that path. Come and see something that's better. What I want is Absalom, my son. I know what it is to hate. I know what fear can do. I know what murder is like. And I know how it doesn't free you. Come and see something better. Come and see who I've seen. Come and love who I love. Now let's lift this up out of the dark and dust of David, and we'll drop it into 2022 North Canton. I want to close our morning by asking you to consider three questions. If you're going to show others what God has done for you, you've got to have an answer to these three questions, and they're really basic, they're really simple, but they're very potentially powerful. I say potentially because the ball is in your court in three minutes and eight seconds. You can go ahead and look. I know you do. It's fine. 
Question number one. Do you know him? My mind jumps to Paul in the New Testament, kind of the anti-David. A guy with a lot of reputation to lose, with some dark spots in his past. A guy who we would expect who would want to hide his past and highlight his good. Best foot forward, got to keep up appearances, let him think I've got my stuff together. But he doesn't do that. When he's looking at everything he has to offer, people in his life, here's what he says, Philippians 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, stop. However much money I made, however cool of a car you got, however big of a house we have, however many sports teams I coached, however many college degrees I financed, whatever I did for you, I count it all as a loss. For the sake of knowing Christ, you can have my resume, my little kingdom. Johnny Cash called it my empire of dirt. You can have my perception. You can have my reputation. All I want is to know Christ and for you to know him. The stories that change the world are the stories where I am not the hero. Jesus is. The world does not need to know what you're capable of. The world needs to know what God is capable of through you. That's the first question. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Is he yours? Second question. Has he changed you? Has he changed you? Not do you go to church. Not do you like you're a religious person. Not do you behave. We're way past that. Is God changing you? Is he actually working in your life? Here's why that matters. Paul, again, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. He says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. He continues in verse 23 and verse 24, and he says, I count my life of no value to me, nor is precious to me, except that I may finish my task to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I count my life of no value, he says. If only I might finish my task to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, what does that even mean? You have something to offer, and what you have to offer is not you. You have something to offer. It's bigger than you, and it's beautiful. The best thing you could do for somebody else is to show them what God has done for you. Here's the catch it's got to be real. Discipleship is never fake it till you make it territory. People smell that a mile away. Borrowing from last week. Are you broken, made beautiful? Do you have the mark of the mend? Not perfection, not spotlessness. No, the opposite. Does your life show him? Has he changed you? Third question. Who needs to know? I almost want to like just let it sit there in silence for a minute. Who needs to know? Who in your life? Do you know anybody who feels hopeless? That's not an audience participation question there. Just sit with it. Do you know anybody who feels disillusioned? Do you know anybody who's walking through pain in their life? You know anybody who needs healing? Anybody who's broken and busted? You want to see healing come? The healing that you want to see may be on the other side of a story that you're afraid to tell. 
David had 19 kids. Paul had churches all over the Mediterranean. Who do you have? Who needs to know the good news of a gospel that Jesus redeems broken people? Who needs to know the good news of a gospel that God could use, even me? Who needs to know the good news of a gospel that there is a God who made you, knows you, loves you, and wants to be with you? Let me get super practical here, and then we'll wrap up. We are fast approaching the holiday season. Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and family and neighbors and gathering. And what would it mean for you this year? to make this an occasion where you talk about the God who is changing you for his glory and your joy. Who is coming to your house where you can go, you know what, I'm going to take this a little bit deeper this year. I'm going to talk about something I've never talked about before. Could you do that this year? I wonder. Who needs to know? If you're wondering if, if God is faithful to make you new, he is. If you're wondering if God is faithful to stay with you when you want to give up, he is. If you're wondering if God is faithful to give you a future that you can barely see, he absolutely is. Let me pray. God, we feel this heaviness. We all know what regret is and we all know what shame is. Lord, give us the faith and the strength to believe that you took those feelings and you nailed them to a cross, that we are not our pasts, we are not our failures, but because of Christ, we can be made new. And Father, if there's somebody here who's holding on to shame and regret, this could be the day. Lord, would you, by your spirit, prompt them in this moment and say, I gotta give this over to Jesus. I'm done carrying it. Jesus, you take my sin and shame and you fix me. Lord, we love you. Bless us today in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.